it would be a sad day if we had a new members class joining and there were not a crying baby in the midst of them. That's a joy to have. It's a good thing to have. It's a great blessing. So we're glad for that. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Romans chapter 13. And that's where we will be this morning. You young Christians, you little disciples, I suppose that at some point in your young lives, you have by now pledged allegiance to the American flag. Have you not? And that's a good and proper thing to do as a citizen of a country. It's a good thing to do. As a citizen, you know you have certain debts that you must pay because you're a citizen. You owe certain things which come with the territory of being a citizen. And so, as we read this passage of Scripture, I want you to listen. See if you can notice, what are a citizen's debts? What do you, as a citizen, owe? Romans 13, starting in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. May we pray. O Lord, our God, we do pray that you would grant to us again eyes to see and hearts to believe your gospel in your word. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you may not feel all red, white, and blue after reading that passage of Scripture, but you need to know it's one of the most patriotic passages in the Bible. 
I realize that for some of you, the notion of patriotism in the Bible makes you just kind of cringe. Makes you kind of uncomfortable, maybe, and I can understand why, but I think it's because you're thinking too narrowly of it, and you'll understand in a moment, I hope. Now, I myself am not a big God and country guy, per se. In other words, I'm proud to be an American. I really am. I'm thankful for the country in which I live. But as a minister, I'm not inclined to hang an American flag behind the pulpit, as some churches do, just because to me it seems to belittle the gospel. Because the gospel is far bigger than one flag. The gospel is far bigger than one country. And the gospel is far bigger than one grouping of citizens. This passage of Scripture we've just read is not a pro-American patriotism, although it does encourage you to be pro-American if you're an American. And it encourages you to be pro-Mexican if you're a Mexican. It encourages you to be pro-Turkish if you're Turkish. It encourages you to be pro-Cambodian if you're from Cambodia. And it encourages you to be pro-whatever country you hail from. It does do that for you. But more than that, it is a pro-kingdom patriotism that Paul writes of here. If you are a Christian, then you're a citizen not only of a country, but of a kingdom. And your citizenship is important, so Paul writes of it here in Romans 13. A citizen owes certain debts to the good of the society to which he or she belongs. You are a citizen of a city and of a state and of a country. And for most of you, that means Dallas and Texas and the Republic of Texas. For others of you, it means the United States of America. But whatever the case, you are a citizen of a city and a state and a country. And above and beyond all of that, you, though, are a citizen of the kingdom of God, if you are a believer. And this kingdom is, as we've talked about in many weeks past, it is no wispy fantasy, but rather its reality takes shape in the daily life of its citizens. You are a citizen of a city and of a state and of a country, and that matters, Paul says, because of the kingdom of God. And it is your allegiance to this sovereign God that shapes how you relate to the rest of the society in which you live. Do not be conformed to this world, Paul has already written to us. However, you do live in this world. And it is neither an accident nor is it out of the control of the one who created it. And therefore, you owe something. You owe something as a citizen. I want you to notice in this passage of Scripture the sort of narrowing scope of Paul's exhortation. He goes from national issues to to local issues, to personal issues. He goes from governing authorities to neighbors to self. And in doing so, in that narrowing scope of his exhortation, he gives us the gospel by showing what we as citizens owe. What are our debts? What do we owe? Well, for one, obviously, here we owe subjection to our authorities. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, Paul writes. Now, it's no mistake, and it's a beautiful providence, really, that, God is, that Paul is writing this subject to the Roman Christians, those who lived in Rome under the shadow of the Roman Empire itself. You know, in the mid to later chapters of this heavily theological letter, Paul becomes heavily application-oriented. How is one to live in this world, who believes this gospel. And he writes some things. Bless those who persecute you. Live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves. Overcome evil with good. And speaking of good and evil, Paul writes, God has provided a structure to maintain good with order. The governing authorities, the government. And you as a Christian are subject to it for two reasons. Because God is your sovereign, and because conscience is your guide. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Governments exist under the authority of God. It's very clear here. It's a simple deduction that we can take from knowing God's sovereignty. He's an authority over them. But Christians at this point often make a vital mistake. We want to say, speaking to government, yes, government, look, do you see that you're under God's authority? Therefore, you have to stop doing this and you have to start doing that. That's the statement that we want to make, but Paul's really not even talking about that here, is he? This is not an explanation of how government should be structured even. It's rather an exhortation to Christians about how they are supposed to live with whatever government they have. The Romans lived under an empire, one which bore the sword literally and frequently and easily. And it's these Christians that Paul is writing to. Now, we have to acknowledge that he does give a general sense of what governments are supposed to be about here, doesn't he? He says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. In other words, governments are there to defend the good and to overcome the evil, as he's just said in the previous chapter. And therefore, our disobedience to government is necessary when government conflicts with God who has authority over it. There are definitely examples in history of citizens overthrowing and unburdening themselves of the shackles of an unjust government. There's just no doubt about that in history. We can all find examples of that having happened, and it will happen again. But it's not my concern this morning, and I don't think really so much of this text even, to explore those possibilities. Rather, more important is to see what Sinclair Ferguson points out on this very text, and that is this. One of the great beauties of the gospel is that it works. It works in any circumstance, in any country, in any culture, in any generation. And the gospel works in the context of any form of government. It doesn't matter if it's an oligarchy or a monarchy. It doesn't matter if it's a totalitarian dictatorship or a democracy. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be a Marxist communist government, or it could be an Islamic republic. Whatever the case of a type of government, the gospel will work there. 
That's Paul's point here to us. The gospel works with any form of government because over and above and beyond all human government, the kingdom of God has come and is coming and no human structure, no human government will slow it down no matter how good or evil we may perceive it to be. It just doesn't matter what our perception is of it at all. The kingdom of God is coming. And that helps us, in some sense, to see what Paul meant at the very beginning of his letter to the Romans when he wrote that this gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes. Everyone. It doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter what kind of government they live under. Christians have, have thrived under every type of government imaginable and every type of government throughout history. If we think as Americans that the strength of the church depends on who is in the White House or upon which party rules the Senate, then we ought to tell that to our African brothers who suffer under the sword. And we ought to tell that to our Cambodian brothers who endured Pol Pot's regime. And we ought to tell that to our Turkish brothers who bear the weight of a secular but Islamic state. Many of these brothers and sisters being far more weighty in substance in their faithfulness to the gospel than we could imagine being. We ought to tell them that we think the church depends on the White House. And they will tell us different. Many Americans look around, including myself often, at current events and elements in the United States, and we speculate that maybe the USA, as we know it now, won't even exist 50 or 100 years from now. You ever think that before? I've thought that. I've wondered that. Because we live nostalgically, don't we? We think that and we pout. We pout and we complain as Christians because we live in nostalgia. We long for the wonder years. And we assume that government and society, as we prefer it, is the best way to achieve God's purposes in His kingdom. But God is sovereign, and every governing authority that exists was instituted by Him because His kingdom reigns regardless of what government is in power. You are subject to the governing authorities because of God's sovereignty, but also because conscience is your guide. Verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Okay, here Paul assumes something. He assumes something important about these Roman Christians and about you and about me and any subsequent reader of this text. He assumes this, that when you were born again by the work of the Holy Spirit, Something happened in your heart and in your soul. The Holy Spirit enlivened your conscience so that you now desire right from wrong. You desire good from evil. Assuming this, Paul says, you must subject yourself to the governing authorities because not just because you'll get in trouble if you don't, but also, and maybe more importantly, because... It's right and it's good to do it. And you know that you should do what's right and what's good. It's a simple argument for us, isn't it? It means to us that all citizens, especially Christians, have the greatest reason to be subject to government, even, listen, even to pay taxes. 
I mean, it gets as mundane as that. How much more down-to-earth can it possibly be? Verse 6, I will warn you, is going to get under your skin. I just confess. It's not my fault, so don't complain to me. Okay? Verse 6, look closely. For because of this, that is your conscience, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. The authorities are ministers of God. Okay, Paul uses some really striking language here. Okay, listen. We look at our governing authorities, congressmen, senators, local state officials, and so forth, and we would rather call them dogs than what Paul calls them here. Paul calls them ministers, and the word is literally this, letergos, liturgists. Paul says to us that these governing authorities, these officials are liturgists of God. And he's connected it to to our paying taxes to them. Okay? It makes me a little sick at my stomach to think of this. Does it not you? I mean, why would God call our governing officials liturgists? I mean, speak of belittling the gospel, right, in our eyes? But he does it for a reason. Why? How is this? Well, remember, you may be a citizen of a city, a state, and a country, but you're also a citizen, more importantly, of the kingdom of God. And when taxes are paid, what happens? Police are established so that order is preserved and the weak are protected. When taxes are paid, schools are open so that all gain opportunity together. When taxes are paid, roads are built so that commerce and community can thrive. When taxes are paid to a governing authority that does good, the kingdom of God has come and God is worshipped in the paying of taxes to that end. And therefore, a Christian should be anxious to pay taxes. I'm not there yet. Of course, government often does wrong. You know, we recognize that. Police often serve corruption. Roads often serve our greed. Schools often serve error rather than truth. And at that point, the conscience guides a Christian to stand against it because first and foremost, your citizenship is in the kingdom of God and your faithfulness to your worldly government is born out of your citizenship in the kingdom of God. Your calling is to serve Jesus in the world that is, though, and not in the world that you wish you lived in. Regardless of what type of government you have, God is your sovereign, your conscience is your guide, and therefore you are subject to the governing authorities, however you may like it or not. Now, in verse 8, Paul moves on then. We see narrowing the scope, going from national issues to local issues because, as we all know, the grassroots determine the bigger picture, don't they? And so not only do you owe subjection to the governing authorities, but as a citizen closely related to that, you also owe love. You owe love to your neighbor, Paul says. You see how he continues the theme of verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, whether it's taxes or revenue, whether it's respect or honor, pay to all what is owed. And then verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. Owe no one anything except, or maybe better said, let no debt remain outstanding except 
Okay, the Bible doesn't forbid borrowing money. That's just not the point of this text. So don't get caught up in that here. It's not the point. Rather, whatever debts you may incur, pay them off. Don't keep owing. Don't keep owing the debts that you owe. But you need to know there's one debt that you will never pay off. Years beyond, after you've paid off that mortgage, you will still owe this debt no matter how much you've paid on it. And it is this. Love your neighbor. Paul says, as a citizen of the city and the state and the country, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, you owe love to your neighbor, to your fellow citizen. And you owe it for the sake of fulfilling the law, he says. Governing authorities are in the business of making and enforcing laws. It's their God-given right to do so. And it's also their God-given right to expect their citizens to fulfill the law. Now, of course, Paul appeals to kingdom law here to make his point. What does he say? You know the law. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't covet. And all of these are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself, for love fulfills the law. So how are the commands fulfilled by love? Well, it should be pretty obvious to us. Love means that you never steal another man's wife. Love means that you give life rather than take life. Love wants to bless others, not take what belongs to them. And love means that you rejoice that others enjoy rich blessings that you don't and never will have. Love means those things, and so love fulfills the law. Always love fulfills the law. And whatever other commandment Paul says there is, love fulfills that Law And so this you owe. Can you imagine how things would be if citizens loved their neighbor as they love themselves? I mean, can you imagine the governing authorities would not know what to do with themselves? It would be a different world altogether. You owe love to your neighbor for the sake of fulfilling the law and also for the sake of doing good. It's really just that simple. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. And more positively, we ought to put it, love does good to a neighbor. Paul has already told us that in verse 3, where he said, Would you not fear the one in authority? In other words, if you would live without fear to the one in authority, then do what is good. Do what is good. Benefit the society in which you live by loving God your neighbor. You are indebted by the gospel to love them, to do them good. Christians complain a lot about government. Listen, I'm one of them. I I easily and quickly complain, I confess. I mean, just a week ago, we were on a bike ride as a family down to White Rock Lake. Just about a two-mile ride down the trail from our house, and we had arrived at the lake and stopped to kind of see what was going on, and there out in the lake nearby was a single duckling, paddling around all by himself. Couldn't have been more than a week or two old hatchling duck. All by himself. Shouldn't have been. Should have been with his duckling siblings following mama duck around, happy and quacking, right? But he was all by himself, spinning in circles. Something was obviously wrong. So we stopped and kind of fretted over this duckling for a moment. And then we saw a group of other ducks come swimming down the shoreline, and we thought, ah, here comes aunt and uncle. The family's coming. They're going to come and shepherd him back to the 
mama duck. Well, these ducks came as a gang and began to beat him up. And so we shoot him away. Get away. Get away from that little duckling, you mean ducks. They swam on down the shoreline. And this little duckling continued to flounder all by himself. And so we began to fret and worry. What do we do for this little duckling? And we decided, well, I could just ride back to the house. So I did. I, I hopped on my bike and I rode as fast as I could back to the house. I was going to get a bucket or something so I could come and retrieve this duckling to save this duckling. And when I got back to the house, I got in the car. I called Mary on the cell phone. And I said, is it still there? She said, yeah, it's here, but never mind. Because we just talked to a man who said that by federal law, it's illegal to tamper with migratory animals. The government will fine you if you come and save this duckling. So don't. And I began to curse under my breath. My government would fine me for saving a baby duckling? And I had all kinds of government conspiracies forming in my heart <laughs> over a baby duckling. Right, listen, I'm the first one to complain we complain. We complain because we're taxed too much. We complain because schools are bad. We complain because abortion is legal. But listen, may we not complain about taxes and schools if we don't vote and if we don't serve and seek better in love for those who endure them. May we not complain about things like abortion, even if we're not willing to help its victims find another way. There are ways to do that, you know. The Dallas Pregnancy Resource Center, right here in Dallas, is a, a local ministry that we as a church have begun to support financially, albeit in a small way. But what they need, even perhaps more than finances, is us. They need counselors to come and volunteer to counsel women who would otherwise consider abortion. In that tangible way, you can do good to your neighbor in love. One organization that's caught my attention recently is a group called Behind Every Door. It's a business-slash-ministry. I had lunch with a couple of these guys not too long ago, and they described to me what their intent is. They are Christian businessmen seeking ownership of low-income apartment complexes. And their reasoning is that behind every door, as the name would say, there is a story. Behind every door, there is a family in need of redemption, especially in these low-income areas. And so they go seeking investors to gain ownership of these low-income complexes in order to eliminate the slumlord so that they can become godly landlords and godly owners, and seek actual gospel transformation in the midst of that community. Right here, 200 yards from my finger, is Willow Pond Apartments behind Home Depot. And they have a partnership with the Christian owners, by the way, of that complex to come in weekly, four times a week, in fact, for kids' clubs with the kids in that complex. And they go and they share the gospel with them, and they love them, and they encourage them. And they provide for them in many ways. And they need help. They need people to come and volunteer to help with that kids club. There are so many ways that you can seek to do good for those who are your neighbors, those who you don't even consider your neighbors, perhaps. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you have a debt to pay. Love your neighbor. Fulfill the law and do good. By loving your neighbor. Now, finally, Paul goes from local issues to personal issues here. He's, again, narrowing the scope. 
right? From the governing authorities to the neighbors and society around you. And now he becomes personal. After all, redemption of a society is affected by the redemption of its people, is it not? And so he says that our last debt as citizens is that we owe nothing. We owe nothing to our flesh. We owe nothing to our sinful nature. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. As a citizen of the kingdom of God and as a citizen of the, for the good of your city and your state and your country, you owe nothing to your flesh. You owe nothing to your sinful nature because it's time for it to die. Because the night is far gone, Paul says. He's waxing a little poetic here. Besides this, verse 11, You know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now Paul here kind of takes a bird's eye view of redemptive history, as it were, He was, you know, a devoted student of the Old Testament. He knew his scripture thoroughly and well. And he saw all of that Old Testament scripture. And now in a new perspective, having been born again, he sees it all fulfilled in Jesus. And it's as though the night stretched back through time, through the prophetic word, looking forward to the coming of a Redeemer. But now that Redeemer has come and the sun has arisen The night is far gone, Paul says, because Jesus has come. The Redeemer is here. The sun has risen. Now, Paul knows that Jesus must return eventually to complete, to bring fulfillment ultimately of his kingdom. He knows he's not done that yet. But to Paul, it doesn't so much really matter when he's going to come. It may as well be tomorrow or it may as well be a thousand years from now because it's so certain it's going to happen. It is as though it already has happened To Paul, the night is far gone, so it's time for the works of darkness to be cast off. And therefore, he says, provide nothing for your flesh. Provide nothing for your sinful nature. You know what happens when you don't provide for something. It dies. It dies. So stop feeding it. Listen, if ever there was a place for the overthrowing of power, you who long for that, If ever there was a place for civil disobedience or civil war, if ever there was a place for the rejection of tyranny and for the biblical refusal to obey commands, it is in yourself. It is right there in yourself. Make no provision for the flesh, Paul says. You owe it nothing. Let it die. Let it die because you wear the Lord Jesus. Let us walk properly, he writes, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, did you catch the curveball that he just threw? Did you, did you see the non sequitur? It just doesn't quite follow. Did you see what Paul did here? He paints a contrast. And it's not quite what we should expect in the end, maybe. He says, don't walk in debauchery, drunkenness, and quarreling and jealousy. No, we know something's coming. He's going to offer an alternative. And what we expect, admit it, what we expect him to say is, but rather, put on 
holiness. In other words, don't be bad, but be good. We fully expect him to say that, and we wouldn't even blink an eye if he said that. But he doesn't say that, does he? Because Paul knows better. He knows that you can't be what you are not. Therefore, put on Jesus. Put on Jesus. Believe the gospel and put on the fruit of his spirit. Put on grace. Put on the gospel. Can you imagine the grassroots transformation that would come as the kingdom of God comes? You are a citizen, all right? You're a citizen of a city and of a state and of a country, and all of that is important. And every citizen owes something. You owe subjection to your authorities. You owe love to your neighbor. You owe nothing to your sinful nature. Every citizen owes something, but if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, you owe much, much more than anyone else. Amen. May we pray. Oh Lord, we do pray that you would grant to us submissive spirits that by your spirit we might do these things as you call us to do as a result of the gospel at work. We pray that you would make us to be godly citizens because we are citizens of your kingdom. We pray that you would cause us to recognize and see your kingdom at work and because of that, that we might bring you glory by subjecting ourselves to our authorities by loving our neighbors and by offering nothing to our flesh that it might die as your spirit works in and among us. We pray these things for Jesus' name and his sake. Amen.